Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Convention of State's President Mark Meckler gives testimony to a Wisconsin Legislative Committee in December of 2019. Uh, Mark, welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, honorable members of the committee. It is an honor and a privilege to be here in Wisconsin today birthplace of the Republican Party. I know there's a little bit of fight about that around the country, but uh, we're going to call it Wisconsin for the purposes today. It's really, honestly, it's an honor for me to be here. And I know people say this quite often. I have a unique honor, which is I get to travel all across the country and appear in legislatures all across the country. I've had the opportunity to testify as the president of the Convention of States Project in dozens of chambers across the, the country, probably in excess of 100 times at this point never ceases to amaze me to watch the workings of state legislatures. It's very different in state legislatures than it is in Washington, D.C., and I've spent my fair amount of time in D.C. as well, much to my chagrin, and I would say D.C. is fairly well broken, and the state legislatures are pretty healthy in comparison. Your state in particular runs fairly well. There's, a, there's decorum and decency on the floor of your houses. People seem to get along relatively well. There certainly is contention over certain issues. Uh, we watched it yesterday on the Christmas tree issue. But I think in the end, you go back to your communities and you live and work together. Very different than what we see in Washington, D.C. And that's why, for me, it's such an honor to come and testify in these legislatures all over the country. The big reason that I'm doing this, that I am testifying in legislatures all over the country, is because I do have so much respect for those of you who serve in these legislatures and what and whom you represent. The founders of this country had the same respect for you. In fact, they had an extraordinary level of respect for elected state legislators. They made you the most powerful people in our federal system of governance. Not the president, not the courts, and not Congress. They gave you and only you the power to propose amendments to the Constitution, call a convention, propose amendments, and ratify those amendments, thereby correcting problems seen or uh, improving the structure, the very structure of our federal government. That's an extraordinary power. I think the courts take that power sometimes, but it was intended only for you. I don't think it's surprising that they intended that power for you. Um, you when you were elected to the state legislature, you probably didn't think of yourselves as the most powerful people in the federal government, but the founders did, and here's why. Because they were you. They were people just like you. They had served in state legislatures, colonial legislatures, county councils, county boards. They were government close to the people. They didn't think that you would necessarily be better people than those people who went to our central government, but they knew that you would be closer to the people you represented. And they liked governance close to the people. And I still today like governance close to the people because I believe in you, because I know in this legislature today that your constituents could walk into your office, knock on the door, and ask to see you, and most likely, even without an appointment, you would see your own constituents. And you can't do that in Washington, D.C. today. There was a fundamental fight that took place at the convention in 1787, a little-known fight about the amount of representation that people should have. Washington chose not to participate very much in the convention because he was worried that he would have an outsized influence on the debates. 
But on the debate surrounding the number of people that should be contained in a single congressional district, he weighed in with a very strong opinion, and he believed that a congressional district should contain no more than 30,000 citizens, for he believed that no human being could adequately represent the interests of more than 30,000 citizens at a time. There was a heated debate, and he actually ended up losing the debate, and the formula was set at 50,000 citizens per district. Today, the average congressional district contains over 700,000 citizens. We are no longer a representative republic. The federal government has taken power away from the states incrementally, especially over the last 115 years, and consolidated it in Washington, D.C. I've had it told to me by numerous members of this body as I've traveled around and talked to folks over the last couple of days, federal government controls approximately 40% of your state budget. In most states, it's much higher. You're to be congratulated for maintaining control. The average is about 60 to 65%. It's my opinion, it should be almost 0%. The people of Wisconsin who elect you, elect you to control what goes on in the state of Wisconsin. They don't elect the people in Washington, D.C. to control what goes on in the state of Wisconsin. So this fight is a fight not about policy, it's not a fight about the EPA has been brought up, or it's not a fight about any particular agency or any particular uh, a, uh, policy of the federal government. It's a fight about who decides. In America, we answered that question in bold calligraphy with we, the people, decide. Today, unfortunately, that power pyramid has been turned on its head, and primarily it's we, the folks in Washington, D.C., decide. Much of the power to decide has been delegated by Congress to administrative agencies who write rules which have the effect of law. They can haul people before judges who are appointed by the administrative agencies, not elected, who are not accountable to you, to the people. And they can penalize with criminal penalties. They can put people in jail. They can take your property away. They can impose fines on you outside of our normal criminal justice system. I, I believe the administrative state largely is unconstitutional. It's power that's been granted by the Supreme Court, never intended by the founders. Our purpose today in being here and our purpose in traveling around the country, the purpose of the 15 states who've passed the Convention of States resolution to this date, is to open a debate, a discussion, where the states may get together and make suggestions to the rest of the states in the country, to all the states together, about what should the proper power balance be between the federal government and the states. I think it's a discussion that's long overdue. Today, 72% of Americans, across party lines, by the way, say that the federal government is too big and just too much. Now, we might argue about what things are too big, what departments, what programs are too big, what is too much in a particular program, and those are good policy arguments to have, but the American people are united on the fact that they don't like Washington, D.C., and they believe Washington, D.C. does too much. Today, 27% of Americans say that the federal government has the consent of the governed. That number should terrify us. That's what I would describe as a pre-revolutionary number. When a full three-quarters of the American people roughly say that those that they elect that go to Washington, D.C. don't have our consent to govern, we are in dangerous times. And what they don't like is they don't like D.C. shoving things down their throat that they don't want in their individual states. The last speaker spoke about the vitriol and the divisiveness in the country, and I lament that as well. It's been very frustrating to watch it increase in, in my relatively short time in politics over the last 10 years. And I think part of the reason it's a symptom of so much power consolidated in Washington, D.C. 
See, because when the power's in D.C. and decisions are made by one administration or another, one party or another, Congress controlled by one party or another, half of the country roughly is going to be upset about many of the decisions are made. And when that power is dispersed or atomized out to the states as the founders intended, we work those problems out among ourselves with our neighbors, and generally speaking, we do a pretty good job of it. We set constitutional boundaries that were really important in the Bill of Rights to make sure that fundamental rights are protected and that they always will be. And we always should protect those rights, and they've been necessary at numerous times in our country's history. And those rights remain intact, and they always will remain intact. They're not subject to uh, approach by the Convention of States project. I'd like to address a little bit of process, if I may. Uh, Representative Shaw, you were asking some process questions of the, the guy who was up here before me and asked if, if he would be comfortable if I could describe or somebody could describe how the convention cannot run away. So I'd like to walk through that process, if I may. The way that the Convention of States process works is, as you know, you're debating a resolution, a joint resolution here in your legislature. Fifteen other states have passed the same resolution, same language. And that resolution becomes the law of convention. It sets the rails for convention. In this case, there are three parts to this resolution. The resolution contains a discussion point about fiscal restraint on the federal government. In other words, how much can the federal government spend? How much they, can they tax? One of my favorites is potentially imposing generally accepted accounting principles on the federal government. If there are any financial professionals in this room, you'll know the federal government accounts using Skittles and M&Ms at this point. There are no accounting principles in the federal government. So that's one area we're going to address, fiscal restraints on the federal government. The second is term limits. And by term limits, we mean not just potentially term limits on Congress, which is very popular, but also term limits on bureaucrats and staffers and potentially on the federal judiciary. The American people, by and large, are greatly in favor of term limits, as you heard from the representative from U.S. term limits. Uh, there are, I know there are issues with term limits, and I've talked to a lot of legislators about that, but my opinion is with the American people. Not that I agree in term limits, but when 82% plus of the American people think that we ought to have a discussion about something, I think we owe the American people that discussion. And if we say we shouldn't have that discussion, well, that's just tyranny, because we're not that much smarter than the vast majority of the American people. I'm not smarter at all. And the third is anything that would impose scope and jurisdiction restraints on the federal government. And this is the one where, again, the majority of Americans agree that the federal government is too big and does too much, and they want them out of our lives, and they would like that power to reside with you, their state representatives. It's not that they don't like government, it's that they don't like government so far away. So those are the three subject matter areas and those set the boundaries for convention. When we get to 34 states and we go to convention, those are the boundaries for convention and you as your state legislature and you have in law the way this is chosen. So uh, both houses, the governor uh, will choose who your delegates will be and those delegates will be sent with something called a commission. Commission is a piece of paper. Today it'll probably be digital, and it says what a delegate may or may not do. And the delegate is bound by that. For those who are lawyers in the room, the common law of agency tells us when you appoint an agent, an agent is bound by the authority given. The common law of agency has existed all the way back into ancient England. It's the same in every state in the United States of America. You have full control over any agent you appoint. The idea that your delegate could go to convention and do whatever they want flies in the face of all legal and historical precedent. So they go to convention, they carry their commissions with them. In convention, they will debate. They will operate essentially as a legislature. You will send your delegations. Each state will have one vote. How do we know one state, one vote? Because 
It's called a convention of states. A state is a sovereign entity. It's not a convention of delegates. It's not a convention of commissioners. It's not a convention of pro rata. It's a convention of states. We've had 41 of these in American history, interstate conventions, always been one state, one vote. There's no exceptions. There was one convention just prior to the Civil War, trying to prevent the Civil War. The more populous states tried to switch it to pro rata representation or pro rata voting at the convention, and the states voted not to do that. One state, one vote. And <laughs> they voted that way. So we have a long history of this. So in convention, they'll break into committees. They'll debate the three subject matter areas, probably subcommittees around particular amendments. If you want to see a sample of this, we held a simulated convention two years ago in Williamsburg, Virginia. And that's, that video is all available online. They'll come back to the committee of the whole, or essentially to the floor of convention, propose amendments, debate amendments, and hopefully pass out one or a slate of amendments. Those amendments then, become suggestions. They're not law. And I want to address a really gross fallacy of constitutional law that's been discussed here. And that is the idea that the, uh, the way of ratifying, the number of states required by ratification, could be changed through this process. And here's why this is such an incredibly gross misunderstanding and distortion of constitutional law. Because they're trying to liken it to what happened after in, in 1787, the way they set up ratification. But today, we have the actual method for ratification built into the United States Constitution. It would actually require a ratified constitutional amendment in advance to change the method of ratification. A convention would have to be called to change the method of ratification. So that's not being done. It would have to be done. That method of ratification would have to be changed in advance. By the way, the courts have weighed in on the Article 5 process many times, over 40 times. There's a treatise out there called The Law of Article 5. If you're a lawyer or you like really boring stuff, I recommend it. And you can see when the courts weigh in, what they say is that the law is very clear. In fact, in the 1980s, one of the courts said virtually everything that could be decided about Article 5 has been decided. And in regard to changing the rules midstream, the courts actually said, the court actually said, you can't make any rule changes midstream, and you certainly can't change the, the constitutional mandate for 38 states by executive fiat. It takes 28 states to vote, or sorry, 26, a mere majority, to get something out of convention as a suggestion, and then it goes out to the states for ratification. And it takes three quarters of states to ratify anything that goes out to the states as a suggestion. Average time for ratification in American history is about 18 months, roughly. Some have taken much longer. The most recent, the 27th Amendment, took over 100 years to ratify. Uh, kind of an outlier there. I think uh, the convention itself can impose a time limit for ratification. I'm just guessing when I tell you that they will. I don't think they will like the idea of it floating around for 100 years now we, that we've had that experience. Uh, they go out to the states for ratification. When 38 states ratify, it becomes part of the United States Constitution. I've heard the question, why will people follow the amendments if they're ratified, and if, if we think they don't follow the Constitution right now? And the answer is, they always follow the amendments. We have a long history of this. It takes about 100 years for the federal government to start to drift away from uh, listening to or following the amendments. So, and that's not because they're magic. It's because it takes a massive effort of political will, 34 states to call, 38 states to ratify. And uh, frankly, in Washington, D.C., the politicians just aren't that brave. When three-quarters of the states have said they want to do something, Washington, D.C. tends to go along. That's how the process works. So that's, that's the clarity on the process. Uh, before I close my remarks, uh, I, I'd like to address a little bit of a process here, if I might. As I said, I've, I've testified probably 
now in excess of 100 times in state legislatures across the country. I've listened to testimony of professionals. Uh, I've listened to many incredible questions from state legislators, uh, good, inquisitive questions, polite dialogue. I've listened to citizens testify all across the country. That's what always inspires me most. This is the first time in, in my history testifying in a state legislature. I'm not happy to see this where I've seen witnesses who are clearly not legal experts questioned by an attorney who should know better, as if the people sitting at this table were lawyers and should understand constitutional decision-making going back in excess of 100 years. Those kinds of questions are not only unfair, they're disrespectful to the citizens you serve. You know well, Representative Taylor, that these citizens are not attorneys when they set up here, and they're not capable of answering questions like that. And simply a method for badgering the witnesses and making them uncomfortable, making the citizens of this great state feel uncomfortable coming out here. We want them to feel comfortable to come testify. So I'm, I'm happy to answer questions of a legal nature. Uh, I'm uncomfortable when citizens who are not legal experts are asked those kinds of questions. And with that, I'm happy to take questions. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.